0: everyone, and welcome to another episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you, part of the Agora Podcast Network. Today, we're going to be talking about some stuff that happened in Saudi Arabia recently, this recent attack on their oil refineries, and a deployment of U.S. troops back to Saudi Arabia, which is something pretty novel, and as we'll get to, we think, relatively important. Before we do, if you've been a fan of Reconsider for a while, we just released our 100th episode on Astropolitics of the Expanse. If you've been listening all the way back with us since 2015, please do go to patreon.com reconsider. We appreciate a buck an episode. helps us keep the show going, do some marketing, and all that good stuff. If you don't follow us on Twitter, please do at ReconsiderPod. We are trying to up our Twitter game a little bit and be a little bit more active. We're also available on Facebook at ReconsiderPod. Now, we're going to release this episode in quick succession with another one that we just recorded a couple of minutes ago on the impeachment process, just because they're both relatively timely and we didn't want to wait. So if it's a little bit longer than usual before we get another episode out for you, we're sorry. We'll try to do it in two weeks, but you have two right now to work with.
2: It's a busy day over here at reconsider HQ. The world keeps giving us good crap to talk about. Uh, people keep asking. So we are going to answer. So Saudi Aramco, so you probably heard of it. It's big. Uh, it's really big. They make a lot of oil. And last month on September 14th, two large oil facilities, a refinery and an oil field in Saudi Arabia were attacked, temporarily reducing Saudi Arabia's oil production capacity by 50%. 5-0. Five 5-0. Zero. Five zero. It dropped from 10 million barrels per day
0: to 5 million barrels per day. Yikes. And with the rapid drop in global supply, I think that that represented maybe three or four percent of global supply of oil because Saudi provides about eight percent of global oil production. It's like 10 million on one hundred and. 90 million, so it's a little less than that. Anyways, oil went way up. Oil prices went way up. They spiked by something like 12% overnight. And this was the largest single-day increase in oil price in 30 years. Brent increased from $60 to $68, just like that. And Absurd. Absurd, right? That's a big spike. At first, well, not at first, the Houthis claimed responsibility for the attack. And if you don't know who the Houthis are, they are this Shia... Iran-backed group fighting in Yemen in the Yemeni Civil War against the Saudi-backed and internationally recognized government of President Hadi. Now, the Houth- And if you've listened
2: to Reconsider before and you're like, wait, Houthis, they sound familiar, you'll remember this part. These are the guys with the flag that says, God is great, death to America, death to Israel, a curse upon the Jews, victory to Islam. That is their official
0: flag, folks. This is who we're dealing with. Catchy tagline. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, You, you got to at least give it to them that they put everything that they're all about right on that flag.
2: Right out there.
0: Yeah. yeah. So the thing is, Houthi attacks against Saudi Arabia is not new. Houthis have regularly attacked Saudi targets with drones and missiles supplied by Iran all throughout the Yemen Civil War. However, none have caused anywhere near as much damage as this most recent one did last month. Also, most of the Houthi attacks occur near Saudi Arabia's southern border with Yemen. A couple happen in Riyadh, and one or two small-scale attacks have occurred in sort of Saudi Arabia's east, but they've all effectively been deterred or have only caused minor damage. However, this most recent one caused the most damage compared to any prior attack, and it happened in Saudi's eastern region, something like... 500 kilometers a very long long way away from the Yemeni border and it, it helps to look at a map to see to actually get a sense of this but it was right on the Persian Gulf
2: so shortly after this attack there were you know there are a few people that started suspecting that maybe the Houthis were not solely responsible for the attack and in some ways obviously not right they are funded by the Iranians they're armed by the Iranians but More importantly, as more information on the attack came out, uh, evidence started to indicate that the attacks did not originate in Yemen, but rather in southern Iran. Oh, boy. And uh, I don't know, Xander, is it recorded? But I, I do know that you might have been on live Bloomberg television to discuss just this topic.
0: Yeah, last month I was on Bloomberg Television Asia to talk about it. I don't know if there's a video clip that's been made publicly available, but I was on whatever the live television broadcast of it was.
2: We'll try to find it. Xander is as handsome as he sounds. So, uh, you know, you definitely want to see that if possible, much obliged.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. Following this attack, the U S announced that it would be deploying troops to Saudi Arabia, mainly for the purpose of defense and deterrence. And the reasoning here is if Saudi's air defenses are so weak that a single attack can offline half of its oil production, well, then that's a sign that despite all of the defense aid that Saudi, Saudi already receives from the US, that it really isn't up to snuff. And maybe that's the technology, maybe it's the quality of the forces manning the air defenses, who knows? But either way, the US announced after the attack that it's sending about 200 more US forces to. Saudi Arabia.
2: Now one question I have is is it clear what kind of troops these are? I'm imagining for example how, you know, we moved we moved some troops in NATO east to Poland, both to say like hey, thank you for actually spending your money, but also like hey, you know, if the Russians are going to roll over or like, you know, roll on in, they have to go through Poland first and they will end up killing Americans sooner. So like there is a blood deterrent there, right? As as everyone learned in 1941, like the the best way, or well, 1941 and then 2001. Like the best way to get the United States to stop bickering for five minutes and throw its entire might at killing you is to kill Americans, and so. Uh, my initial assumption was that we were just like putting American bodies in the way so that if so as to act as a deterrent, right? We don't want them to die, but Iran is smart enough to put two and two together in here and be like, oh, if we like bomb the wrong thing and some American dies, we're in trouble. Is that, is that what's going on? Or are they like Air Force mechanics or, or sorry, like technicians who are helping improve the air defense capability?
0: My understanding is it's the latter, that they are air defense forces, so meant to really help bone up Saudis' obviously vulnerable air defenses. Got it. Okay. Now, cool. many, many have pointed out that this is the first deployment of U.S. forces to Saudi Arabia in 16 years, which is not true. <laughs> Many have pointed out the following fact that is absolutely wrong. It is inaccurate. And if if those people saying that did a Google search, they would have found out that a couple of months ago, the U.S. had already deployed 500 soldiers to Saudi Arabia in, I think it was June, but certainly over the summer. And this, this summer, was the first deployment of U.S. forces to Saudi Arabia in 16 years since the U.S. withdrew forces from Saudi in 2003.
2: Yeah, and this is a bit of an outrage-inducing level of thing to get wrong. Like it's a very, 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 very important detail. And it's one of those things where, I mean, I even remember, uh, I'll, I'll just share. I have this, I had this bet when President Trump got elected that he'd get through four years without embroiling the United States in a new foreign policy or in a new foreign uh, military venture, right? So he wasn't going to start a new war. Because this person was like, he's going to start all the wars and start World War III. I was like, eh, probably not. And, you know, I've got uh, the clock's ticking, but so far I'm winning. And so it was a group of friends of mine that were like, "Oh, we're sending troops to Saudi Arabia, like it's so we can go to war with Iran, like it's finally this, you know, all of my all of my war mongering. Like I'm finally going to be right this time." And I was like, mm, "No, no, you're not. Like it's it's only 200, and there's already some dudes there, and they didn't know there were already dudes there. Why didn't they know? Because you know the news told them wrong. So this this you know." I mean, everyone loves to be outraged about about everything that the U.S. federal government does when President Trump is in charge. But, you know, and so this was already like ready to be hyped. But that that kind of detail is the thing that really matters for helping the public understand what's going on and why.
0: And, uh, yeah, uh, it was frustrating. And something that we say on the show a lot, and we actually publish this in a set of what we call reconsider principles and discussion strategies, which we'll link up in the show notes, is If you find yourself feeling enraged or emotionally reacting to some sort of information, just pause for a second and question it, especially if it's a source that you are just used to trusting without double-checking because it means that you're more likely to believe something that is worded and designed to provoke your emotions. And right. politics is inseparable from emotion. So that's something we end up chatting about a fair amount on the show. Coming back to the deployment – Why does all of this matter? Why does the fact that the U.S. has sent a couple hundred more soldiers to Saudi Arabia matter at all? I mean, after all, the U.S. has forces all over the world, right? Hundreds of countries we're in. So what's an extra 700 sent to a military ally in the Middle East?
2: And let's just be clear. It's not a preparatory invasion force to go to war with Iran. Like, that's just like whoever told you that just just like. Put them on your list of people to to double check next time.
0: Yeah, exactly. How many how many U.S. soldiers were involved in repelling Iraq from Kuwait? Like hundreds of thousands, right? Right. There was a massive buildup. It took months. Set You're not defeating Iran with 700 soldiers. It's not what this is for. Well, recall that al-Qaeda's own justification for its attack on the U.S. on 9-11 was not, believe it or not, hating our freedom. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Xander. Xander. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no.
2: So I saw this documentary. Yeah. And it the documentary, it was called Team America, World Police. Right, And I'm pretty sure I recall literally seeing Osama bin Laden say, we hate your freedom. Durka Durka al-Jihad. Is this not accurate? <laughs>
0: <laughs> America. <laughs> <fuck> yeah. <laughs> Coming yeah. again to save the motherfucking <laughs> day. Yeah. Yeah. I, I too <laughs> saw that documentary and did not stop laughing for two hours. It's a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great movie. <laughs> So, <laughs> no, it was not to okay, hate so our why, why, Yeah, why,
2: does, why did Al-Qaeda attack us? What's going on?
0: Al-Qaeda is not an irrational actor without a strategy. They are a group that uses terrorism to accomplish their goals. And, in fact, we talked about some of Al-Qaeda's logic and thinking about this on our very first Reconsider show ever wow. all the way back in December 2015. Where we also talked about the U.S.'s approach to ISIS. And you see— Al-Qaeda was trying to create an environment in the Middle East that was ripe for revolution so that a new transnational caliphate could be established that first required overthrowing what Al-Qaeda considered to be tyrannical pro-Western monarchs. However...
2: Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Al-Qaeda overthrowing
0: the tyrants yeah, in I'm order sure.
2: to establish a more peaceful <laughs> and free society. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Revolution is always good, guys, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh. The problem, of course, with this strategy is that it would be very hard to overthrow these tyrannical monarchs to establish a peaceful caliphate, har-har, uh, unless the, all the U.S. forces that were stationed throughout the Middle East, and most notably in Saudi Arabia, could first <clears throat> be kicked out. Al-Qaeda never had any hope to wield enough firepower to overcome the U.S. military. Yep.
2: So... Step one, objective number one for Al-Qaeda was to destroy our freedom. Sorry, take U.S. (laughs) troops out of Saudi Arabia. Although if it was to destroy our freedom, I don't know, like they're doing a good job of that. But step one, take the United States off uh, out of Saudi Arabia. So get rid of like the big, you know, the big Leviathan in the United States. And then step two was get the United States bogged down in a long term, unwinnable war somewhere in the Middle East that would drain its resources and make it unpalatable to the American people to continue deploying forces to that region. How are they so, doing? How are they doing? <laughs> uh, turns out they nailed it. They absolutely nailed it, which is horribly depressing to think about. But the United States did withdraw forces from Saudi Arabia in 2003 and, you know, put a lot more forces in the Middle East temporarily in uh, quagmires that bogged it down, drained it of blood and treasure and, made a further war in uh, the Middle East pretty unpalatable. And, uh, you know, the American public is really not keen on extending this war in the Middle East. We want to get the heck out. We don't want to get into another one. And and so it's it's worth, like, thinking about this for a moment. Uh, despite overwhelming U.S. firepower, Al-Qaeda basically accomplished its key objective in the 9-11 attacks, Right. Even though the United States wrecked chaos in the region during that interim period, um, paving the way for the rise of Iran, of course, Al Qaeda got what it wanted. And if you think about, you know, if you think about people with this level of dedication, right, who think that they are like, who who think that it is their destiny to create a global theocracy, right, for their for you know whatever version of Wahhabism or Salafism that they subscribe to. They're like, oh, yeah, we need to like for the great for the good of God, we need to create a global theocracy. Like they're willing to play the long game here. Right. And and so Al Qaeda are like they're feeling pretty good right now about what they have, what they've accomplished to date. And so right now, you know, you have a United States that has a few troops in Saudi Arabia that's you know, and still has some troops in Yemen, still has some in Afghanistan, has some support in Iraq, has them, you know, kind of peppered all over the place, but is quite sensitive to casualties and quite sensitive to getting into another war and is, you know, poking the bear a little bit in terms of getting troops right back into the exact same situation that caused 9-11 to happen in the first place, but this time with a lot less money and a lot less appetite to spill blood. And there's sort of been this recurring problem with American strategic thought that Xander's talked about a couple of times uh, that actually uh, Michael Mazar talked about with us, that we have this something has to be done attitude where we say, all right, got to do something. Go. So we do that for, you know, we kind of shoot first and ask questions later. And we, fi- we start thinking about what is our true strategic objective here after things start blowing up. And, you know, it's one of those important questions to ask is. You know, how often do we go into a war before we have a clear objective? And and how likely are we to accomplish that objective if we go
0: at it that way? Exactly. So we have now 14,000 forces in Afghanistan, a little more than 5,000 in Iraq, 1,000 in Syria, and now 700 back in Saudi Arabia. Nothing is like the levels that it was, like I mentioned During and immediately after the Persian Gulf War, hundreds of thousands of troops were used to invade Kuwait and repel Saddam Hussein. And President Trump has said that the deployment to Saudi Arabia will remain at less than thousands. And, you know, question the rhetoric of every politician, as we always encourage you to. But at least that's what he said. But the fact of the matter is that the presence of U.S. forces back in Saudi Arabia after 16 years is undoubtedly going to be noticed by the same jihadist groups that fought to get them removed in the first place.
2: Yeah. And so this is so what's interesting is, of course, the deployment is significant, but probably not for any of the reasons that the people that like most Americans who thought it was significant thought, which was they're like, oh, we're 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 building up for a war with Iran. And this will be the 18th time that I predict we're going to go to war with Iran, but I'll be right this time. And, you know, and
0: 18th time's a charm,
2: Eric. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Actually, there's this great I got to I got to share some from Blackadder four. So Blackadder has like all of the great British comedians of the era. So, oh, my gosh, what's his name? The guy who plays Mr. Bean, Rowan Atkinson. It has Stephen Fry as Hugh Laurie. And Blackadder four is about World War one. And uh, Hugh Laurie is the incompetent colonel. And at some point, Blackadder with them. And he goes like, OK, so what's the plan? And he goes, OK, so you know how the last 14 times we went you know, over the wall out of the trench and charge the enemy lines. We were slaughtered. And he goes, yeah, OK. He goes, well, turns out that because it has been such a dismal failure those 14 times, it'll be precisely what the enemy is not expecting us to do this
0: time.
1: Life is full of what ifs, some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry?
2: Yeah. So anyway, but it is so it's not significant in terms of going to war with Iran. It is significant. In fact, it's like kind of designed to stop a war with Iran, right, by improving Saudi Arabia's air defense capabilities to, you know, keep this from happening again so that Saudi Arabia can credibly defend itself rather than have to go on the offensive. Right. So it's the opposite of the whole let's go to war with Iran thing. But it is significant in that there are, you know, there are unintended consequences here. For provoking a transnationalist jihadist group who has made a comeback lately in places such as Yemen, in Libya, in parts of Syria, in not so much in Afghanistan, but you know, Al, al- Qaeda has popped up. They have allies in Boko Haram and so Al Sharia. So you know, in Africa, so these guys are out there. And the first time they said we need to kick the U.S. out of the Middle East, like it worked. And now they might want to do it again, but uh, to a much weaker, much less, you know, foreign adventure prone United States. And, you know, you know, they might be asking themselves, well, is the is the second time the charm here? Do we finally convince them that, you know, instead of, you know, the first time they exhausted themselves and this time do we just convince them to say F it and leave, right? Kind of declare victory and go home. And if that's the case, then like, well, guess, you know, guess what? They've got the U.S. gone and. And uh, they've got a highly disrupted Middle East uh, with a lot more extremism than it used to have. And, you know, again, things are going pretty well for Al Qaeda. But the thing that is relevant about the deployment is uh, the U.S. may need to keep its eyeballs peeled for, you know, like a, a, an increase in activity from these transnationalist jihadist groups that may want to attack the United States, frankly.
0: Now, of course, when you look at an entity's intentions and what they want to do. You also need to think about their capabilities, right? And one of the big differences between now and 2001 was back then Al-Qaeda had safe haven in Afghanistan provided to them by the Taliban so they could conduct operations safely on Afghani soil. Whereas today, Al-Qaeda is present all over the place. But as Eric mentioned, a lot of these are war zones, Yemen, civil war, Libya, civil war, Iraq, technically... Not civil war, but there's still plenty of violence going on and Iranian-U.S. competition heating up there as well. And in fact, the only real discrete objective in the war on terror that the U.S. really outlined at the beginning was removing the Taliban from power in Afghanistan and installing a pro-U.S. government there. And that is on the verge of failure, too. We succeeded at first, but the Taliban now is rapidly retaking territory in Afghanistan the tide of the war and the momentum is without a doubt on their side and even when the obama administration implemented its surge in afghanistan in if afghanistan which brought troop levels to over 100,000 us forces over 100, 100,000 us forces in afghanistan the us led coalition was still not able to fully put down the taliban they just retreated and waited now there are only 14,000 us forces in afghanistan about and that's showing The Taliban controls more territory in Afghanistan than any other entity. And there's no reason to think at this point that if the U.S. could not get an effective, uncorrupted government pro-U.S. to get set up when they had 100,000 troops there, that they're going to be able to do it at this point. So whenever the U.S. leaves, it is very likely that the Taliban is going to retake control or at least substantial control of Afghanistan.
2: So with the United States gone, Taliban likely to either take charge or be able to stably hold a great deal of terror of territory, you know, even if the Taliban promised uh, to the United States in a peace deal that, Oh yeah, we'll totally not host Al Qaeda again. What leverage does the United States have to press the Taliban to hold up to their end of the agreement? Right? So if the Taliban does start giving safe haven again to Al Qaeda, the U S essentially has three choices. One redeploy substantial forces to Afghanistan to try to support the Afghan government in suppressing the Taliban, which has so far failed miserably. And three get Pakistan to lean on the Taliban to prevent it from providing that safe haven to Al Qaeda. And the first problem, the problem with the first two are obvious. Uh, we've tried to do it and they have failed and we're now weaker and less prone to do it than we used to be. And the th- problem with the third is less obvious, but quite substantial throughout the war uh, over these past, gosh, 18 years, Pakistan, has tacitly supported the Afghan Taliban. And the reason here is that there are two separate Talibans. There's the Afghan Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban. And interestingly, the Pakistani Taliban is an enemy of the Pakistani state. So you might think like Taliban bad, they'll go after them. But the Pakistani government has worked with the Afghan Taliban because that Af- the Afghan Taliban is in control of Afghanistan, where which is on Pakistan's border. And the Afghan Taliban is a nationalist group. So unlike al-Qaeda or ISIS, they're not seeking the overthrow of governments everywhere. They just want to control Afghanistan. And the Pakistani Taliban, however, which is related but not technically affiliated with the Afghan Taliban at all, is also a nationalist group. So it seeks the overthrow of the Pakistani government. Confused yet? Great. So the thing to keep in mind is that because the Pakistani and Afghan Taliban are like friendly and self-supportive, but not the same entity. If Pakistan ever tried to come down hard on the Afghan Taliban, it would face the risk of the Afghan Taliban supporting the Pakistani Taliban to fight the Pakistani government because it would be in the Afghan Taliban's interest to have the Pakistani government bogged down with the Pakistani Taliban. So in other words, Pakistan has to play nice with its neighbor, the Afghan Taliban, which they're considering the long-term government of Afghanistan anyway, or they're going to face more threats from within. And it's basically been this way since 9-11 and throughout the whole war on terror. And there's no reason to expect this to change whenever the Afghan war actually does end.
0: Yes. And it's even less likely to expect Pakistan to come down hard in the Afghan Taliban now than maybe like 10 years ago. This is for a couple of reasons. Pakistan has moved much closer to China in the last several years. In fact, China's biggest Belt and Road project is the CPEC, which is the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is a long corridor in Pakistan that runs through contested Kashmir to the Gwadar port on Pakistan's Indian Ocean coast. And estimates vary, but something like $50 billion is set to be invested in this project. So that's a lot of money coming into Pakistan. And the U.S. hasn't exactly been playing nice with Pakistan lately either. For one, the U.S. has limited the defense aid that is provided to Pakistan, which has been pretty consistent for decades. So the pa- Pakistan was a very close ally of the U.S. throughout the entire Cold War because at the time, Russia supported India. And in fact, Russian-Indian defense di- ties are still pretty strong. The U.S. is doing this because the U.S. claims that Pakistan isn't doing enough to help end the war in Afghanistan. Of course, as Eric just discussed... Pakistan is going to have to deal with the Afghan Taliban no matter what, because at some point the U.S. is going to leave, and Pakistan has to plan for that eventuality. Second, and perhaps even more important, is this whole problem with India, right? Pakistan and India have basically been mortal enemies since the partition in 1947. And even though India was closer to Russia in the Cold War than the U.S., India has, over the last 10 years or so, maybe 15 years, yeah, become a very close ally of the U.S. because both India and the U.S. fear China. In fact, India and China went to war in 1962, and India basically got its butt handed to it. So India, or the India, the U.S. and India are now becoming stronger allies, uh, along with Australia and Japan. They are forming this informal coalition called the Quad in order to keep up pressure on China. And since India is Pakistan's arch nemesis, as India... as India and the U.S. draw closer together, Pakistan gets more and more concerned that if push ever came to shove, the U.S. wouldn't really be a dependable ally because it would need India for its anti-China coalition more than it would need Pakistan for whatever. So you have Pakistan drawing closer to China and India growing closer to the U.S.
2: All right. There's a lot going on here. So the reason for all of that is to make clear that Pakistan is not an option for the United States to put pressure on the Taliban um, for a lot of reasons. And so the three options we outlined, which are the U.S. goes to war again, the Afghan government handles it, or the Pakistani government puts pressure on, none of them are likely to work. And so that means is that after the U.S. leaves, there's no reason ultimately that the Taliban wouldn't provide safe haven to groups such as al-Qaeda. And when the U.S. does leave, It will once again have U.S. forces deployed in Saudi Arabia, albeit in smaller numbers, which is the ultimate cause of 9-11, again, not hating our freedom. So we have a Taliban that can support al-Qaeda. We have other countries going through civil wars that until they, you know, until they get a lid on them, uh, certainly won't be defeating al-Qaeda in those countries. And we have U.S. troops back in Saudi Arabia, which triggered the 9-11 attacks and may again trigger an effort for Transnationalist terrorism against the United States.
0: Right. And I tend to discount the threat from terrorism pretty significantly. You're far more likely to die from bee stings or lightning strikes than terrorism. And yet, over the last 17 years, 18 years since the start of the war on terror, we have thrown trillions of dollars into it, even though day to day it presents a minuscule risk of actually causing you any harm. And in fact, I wrote a pretty data-packed article about this back in 2016, which we'll link in the show notes. It was very unsensationally called, We're All Gonna Die! (laughs) At the same time, it's it's hard not to see the similarities between pre-9-11 U.S. and the situation that appears to be emerging in the Middle East, where the Taliban are probably, again, going to control Afghanistan— The U.S. will have little to no leverage over the Taliban, and the U.S. will again have forces in Saudi Arabia, which is bound to piss off a number of these jihadist groups. There's one other big difference between now and 2001, which is the rise of China. China! 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 You see, if back in 2001, the U.S. got attacked and they had all the resources to just go full hog on the Middle East— global war on terror, you come at us, we're going back at you. Why? Because no one could touch the U.S. in a more significant way than a couple of buildings, right? And I'm not saying 9-11 wasn't significant, but didn't bring down the U.S., didn't cause a revolution, right? It's not, it wasn't the scale of the threat that it faced, like with the Soviet Union, which was a major state with nuclear warheads, et cetera, et cetera. Now, though, there's this massive growing power in the Western Pacific that in a lot of ways is challenging The role that the U.S. has played in the global order since 1991, and China is saying, "Look, you set up all these rules without us. So why do we need to play play by your rules? Especially because we were powerless in engaging in the establishment of those rules because you screwed us over in the first place in the 19th century. We were weak because of you. We're going to disregard your order. So now, if the U.S. gets attacked again," Like it did on 9 11 and feels like it just needs to respond because, again, the US has to do something. If it gets bogged down in another war in the Middle East, we now have to contend with both that and China, which is not a problem that we faced in 2001.
2: Indeed. So, okay, let's get back to Saudi Aramco real quick here. And with the summary of the United States is now back in Saudi Arabia, it is potentially, you know, it potentially has ripple effects. Across you know across the future and and is a flashback to two thousand one, but with a lot of important differences, none of which are in the US's favor. So, the most recent deployment of US forces to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is a response to these attacks that the Houthis claimed they conducted on on Saudi. Saudi. Xander has a pet theory that the Houthis were not actually heavily involved or involved at all in the attack. Um, even though they've been involved in prior attacks against Saudi Arabia, in part because there is substantial kind of like that uh, geospatial intelligence stuff that Xander likes to do so much that the attack came from southern Iran, came from the Iranians, that the Iranians themselves launched missiles at or launched a drone with missiles at the oil infrastructure of Saudi Arabia.
0: So it was both. It was drones and missiles separately. Ah. They're believed to be cruise missiles Mm -hmm. and drones. I think there is... something like 19 targets that were hit. And even though a minute ago, early in the show, we said that the Houthis were almost certainly supported by Iran in this attack if the Houthis were involved, the distinction here is that some evidence makes it seem like the attack came from Iran proper, that is, on Iranian soil in the south. And after these attacks occurred, some news leaked that the Houthis were kind of behind closed doors talking to foreign diplomats and actually warning about another strike coming from Iran against saudi arabia and the question you have to ask yourself well first is whether or not this intelligence is accurate and it might not be in which case you know my theory is you know has a big hole in it but and and to just clarify this is a theory it's not proven right but why why would the houthis go out of their way to warn foreign diplomats of another attack one explanation could just be that the the houthis want to appear powerful and have leverage in some negotiations but i i I actually think there's more to it than this. I think the Houthis were providing this information to foreign diplomats out of fear. You see, if the Saudi Aramco attacks did originate from southern Iran, and this were to be conclusively proven and publicly shown to be the case, then it'd be an act of war that would essentially require Saudi Arabia to retaliate directly against Iran. And even though Saudi has a much bigger military budget than Iran— it hasn't even been able to put down the Houthis, a non-state group, on its own border in Yemen in four years, despite originally hoping that its intervention in Yemen would be constrained to three weeks. We'll be home by Eid. Yeah, exactly. And the war has dragged on, and Saudi Arabia has spent more money than it was hoping to by you know an order of magnitude and basically achieved none of its goals. So Saudi really has no hope of winning any war with Iran, whatever that war would look like. So if Saudi needed to retaliate somehow for the Aramco attacks, it would almost certainly have to be against the Houthis in Yemen rather than against Iran proper.
2: Maybe one thing I don't understand is why not just lob your own bunch of missiles back at Iran? Be like, hey guys, we caught you. We are retaliating. It's going to be on this spot. Deal with it.
0: Yeah, because that would be... All that would also be seen as an escalation, right? And it would risk drawing an even greater response from Iran. The beautiful thing for Iran about supporting these non-state groups throughout the Middle East is this technical, plausible de- deniability that it has, right? Like, it Iran says, oh, we don't support the Houthis, whatever, so when... Houthis attack Saudi Arabia, Iran can be like, oh, we weren't involved, we weren't involved, right? So if Saudi responds by attacking Iran, Iran's just going to say, oh, we didn't hit you first, we didn't hit you first, the Houthis did that, we had nothing to do with that, and it can draw an even greater response, right? And that's that would be the risk. What really
2: amazes me is how much diplomacy is like children fighting.
0: 100%.
2: Right? And it's, it's we're sitting there like, we all know, like literally everyone at this table knows that you're responsible for this, and- you have this like thinnest veil of plausible deniability, and so if I do anything about it, you now feel like you have an excuse to do even more about it. Whereas if I did catch you, you wouldn't have felt like you had an excuse to respond. Like, why does any of this matter? I don't know. I will never understand
0: diplomacy. It drives me nuts. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty crazy. So, wh- where are we right now in this summary? The uh, so, so, well, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah.
2: So, if a, if Saudi is going to try to respond in a way to make Iran hurt, they would have to, at this point, only do it in Yemen to make sure that, you know, they don't get bogged down into a full-scale war with Iran, which none of its allies wanted to do either, including the United States, by the way. Doesn't want a war with Iran. Bad idea. And so they're like, okay, so let's just do more stuff in. But unfortunately, over the summer, the war in Yemen started to go much more decisively in the Houthis' favor, And this is despite the UAE, or in fact, maybe because of the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, being part of the side of the coalition. And it's because there's been a lot of infighting between the Saudi-backed forces in Yemen and the UAE-backed forces in Yemen. Confused yet? Yeah. Who should be fighting with each other as allies against the Houthis. And this fighting escalated over the summer with UAE-backed forces attacking Saudi-backed forces and seizing Aden from them. So... Aden, which was the capital, the, the temporary capital of Yemen, because the Houthis seized control of Sana'a and, like, was their primary base of operations, there was a fight over that city between the two forces that are trying to fight the Houthis. So, and then, after taking Aden, the UAE said, well, we're going to withdraw some of our forces from Yemen, uh, but we're going to hold on to all of the territory that our forces took in the south. And here's why this is happening. This is complicated, but Ultimately, the United Arab Emirates, like, look on a map, this will help. The United Arab Emirates sits on the Persian Gulf um, at the southern bit, and they want to hold the southern coast or have puppets that hold the southern coast because they want to have ports based outside of the Persian Gulf that can't be threatened by Iran. And they're less concerned With the north of Yemen, because it's a bunch of desert on Saudi Arabia's border, it's not the UAE's problem. But because it's on Saudi's border, Saudi is much more concerned, of course, with northern Yemen than southern Yemen. So they have these different interests and how to deploy troops, what territory is important to hold. And that means the UAE would have its objectives met and its interests fulfilled primarily by controlling the south, regardless of what happens in the north. So if they can hold the south and keep it safe, well, they can just get the heck out And they decided they were just going to go for that rather than be dragged down forever in a war with the rebels in the north.
0: Right. So this is why the UAE announced that it would be engaging in this strategic and tactical withdrawal in certain places in southern Yemen. And for a while, the UAE was really pushing publicly, at least rhetorically, for peace. And all of this means that in the summer, the situation was one where the Arab coalition was facing serious infighting. The UAE was getting ready to leave, and that would have forced Saudi Arabia to either commit more ground forces to Yemen in order to keep up the fight against the Houthis or face a situation where it needed to compromise somehow with the Houthis. Throughout the war, the UAE has generally been the entity providing the most ground forces, whereas Saudi Arabia has been providing air support. And this has been essentially to keep the war in Yemen politically palatable at home for Saudi Arabia, because if a lot of people start getting killed on the the ground in Yemen, then Saudi Arabian citizens might be like, "Mm, maybe this war isn't such a good idea. It's also why Saudi has been paying Sudan to send thousands, if not tens of thousands of ground forces to Yemen to essentially be cannon fodder. So the Arab coalition led by Saudi Arabia is falling apart. Uh, UAE looked like it was ready to push for peace and withdraw partially. This all looked good for the Houthis. It looked like they were in a position where they were going to be able to force Saudi Arabia to come to the table and negotiate some sort of settlement, some sort of compromise, or face the political unrest at home that might be incurred if Saudi deployed more ground forces. However,
2: However,
0: with the Aramco attacks... As severe as they were, Saudi Arabia has to do something to respond. And because so
2: if you think of the public the public opinion problem, it used to be, oh God, we don't want to just like send a bunch of people to die in this meat grinder. So there's a lot of pressure not to send them, but now the pressure is like, holy crap, we let either Iran or an Iranian backed force take out half of our oil well, half of our oil supply, not our half of our oil infrastructure. That cannot stand. And so now public opinion is flipped. I mean, think, you know, think, I don't know, Pearl Harbor, which was like, you know, don't get in the war, don't get in the war, don't get in the war, please don't get in the war, please go, oh, f these guys, they're going down, let's roll, right? Like, and that kind of flip just happened. And so this may have been a bit of a whoopsie on Iran's
0: part. Right. And the question you have to ask yourself after this pretty complicated summary is why would the Houthis go out of their way? to carry out an attack on Saudi soil they will work against their interests by drawing in a massive retaliation from Saudi Arabia against them in Yemen, right when it looked like they were beginning to have the upper hand. So that's my pet theory, that Iran told the Houthis to take responsibility for the attacks, but the attacks ended up causing way more damage than the Houthis were anticipating. And now the Houthis are kind of freaked out that just as the war was kind of turning their way... They're going to incur new Saudi Arabian wrath. So
2: the question I have is what does Iran get out of it? Like why would they why would they want this to happen?
0: Iran's whole thing is they they don't have a ton of money, right? They don't their their budget, their defense budget is something like fifteen billion dollars a year. And I forget what Saudi Arabia's is, but it's like the fourth biggest in the world because they get so much aid from the US. Mm. So Iran supports proxies all throughout the Middle East in order to essentially drain its enemy's resources. And that's what it's been doing in Yemen. I think one estimate I saw was that Iran has provided maybe tops, a billion dollars to the Houthis throughout the entire war, which is much, much less than what it provides like Hezbollah on, on a yearly basis. So Iran benefits by getting Saudi tied down, forcing them to spend money on a war that is extraordinarily difficult to win Got when it. iran doesn't actually need to spend that much money on it in order to keep it keep it going iran doesn't so need iran is, yeah iran, iran doesn't iran need the not houthis to win in peace. sorry
2: yeah oh yeah, yeah no you you're saying what i what i was thinking iran doesn't need iran doesn't even necessarily want the houthis to win quickly what they want is for saudi arabia to spill blood and
0: treasure in the deserts of yemen exactly the more money saudi spends in yemen the less money they can funnel to anti-Iranian forces in places like Iraq, which are all which is a whole lot more strategically important for Iran because it's right on Iran's border. It's what's gotten been attacked by Iraq before, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
2: Man, that's effed up. Yeah,
0: grand strategy's a bit. Yeah, it's
2: just you know, yeah, real politics is super duper ugly, and this is of course. I think we talked about it before, where you know the the war in yemen is is even more awful than most war and it's even more like indiscriminate bombing even more you know f- tens of thousands of starving children just a, a a cholera outbreak in the 21st century it is a it is a humanitarian just horror show on a scale that feels totally unnecessary. And you know, that the hard part about this of course is that it is a battleground where two states are fighting out a war not of convenience, not for funsies, but it is a proxy battleground for what is truly a mutual existential threat. This is the tragedy. This is the ultimate tragedy of geopolitics. The ultimate tragedy of the security spiral is that if for Saudi, for example, choosing to let the Houthis gain a foothold in Yemen and become a permanent power base for Iran at their own border is unacceptable. And therefore demanding that for humanitarian purposes or for moral purposes that they end their bombing and end their intervention in Yemen is a hard it's a hard thing to ask. Right. And they're unlikely to say yes, even if they feel really bad about it, which who knows that they do. It's not. That's that's less the point. And then, you know, asking Iran to say out of it as well, even in their own just in their more subversive ways is unlikely because, you know, for Moran's perspective, keeping Saudi Arabia, this much bigger, much more funded and powerful adversary, existential adversary tied down is the only way that they stay safe. Ultimately, the only way that they're not long-term threatened with utter destruction, especially when you know Iran is facing all sorts of internal threats and protests and uprisings and upheavals. So basically, it sucks, and that's that's what's really a tragedy about this. So, see, listeners,
0: the Middle East is easy.
2: Yeah. Yes. So next time a president rolls in and says, "I'm gonna, I'm going to be the one who gets peace in the Middle East," uh, just ask. You know this. Spend a moment, ask them how, because it is a, is of course a like fantastic, you know, it's a fantastic goal and, and, and a big, a big Gordian knot to undo here. And unfortunately we do not have, you know, can't just chop through it, uh, tried that didn't work right. Just made it more gnarly. So anyway, so summary of today's show is that, you know, a small, but kind of the big takeaway from this show for me, because Xander did most of the research here because he's the geo, geopolitics guy, small w- within like a big gnarly web of competing geopolitical and security interests and activities, a small change can have big repercussions. Right. The United States moving troops to Saudi Arabia has ripple of even a very small number of them has ripple effects all over the place from transnationalist jihadis to you know to changing the dynamic of a you know an existential slugfest that's been going on between Saudi and and Iran for a very long time now and you know these this show should serve as you know just an abject object example in uh, actions have long you know long wide and unpredictable consequences that we can't even predict at this point, right? We have, there There are a few patterns we're drawing on that has, you know, these actions have unpredictable, unpredictable consequences that can, you know, change the, you know, change the shape of the future forever. And it's often much, much harder to get this right to, for a state to act intelligently in its own interest, um, even when it wants to, than
0: it seems. So with that, I guess we'll say, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Or politicians, for that matter. Pause and reconsider. This is Xander signing off.
2: This is Eric signing off. Have a great couple of weeks. We'll talk to you as soon as we can.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods,